Well, in the last three chapters of Genesis, which would be 18, 19, and 20, we've been studying some very, very sad subject matters. Poor Moses, who penned this book, had to write one happy, unhappy situation after another, beginning back in chapter 18 with the Lord's announcement of impending judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. And then we learned of this very solemn outcome of Abraham's intercessory prayer because not even ten righteous people lived in Sodom. And we learned of the great depravity of the citizens of Sodom and then the inexcusable behavior of Lot who became so conformed to the world that it was really difficult to determine that he was a saved man as Peter tells us that he was indeed in 2 Peter 2, verses 7 and 8. Well, then we next read in chapter 19 of the actual destruction of the cities of the Siddim Valley and of Lot's rescue, but of his terrible end in living in a cave with the grandsons that he had been responsible for producing by way of his own two daughters. And that's a pretty sad end anybody would admit that. And then things really didn't get much better when we came to chapter 20 and we learned of Abraham's fall back into sin because he shamefully deceived Abimelech about his true relationship as Sarah's husband. And he almost lost her along with the promised son that she was to bear. So with all that grim news that really we've been looking at ever since we started this year's Bible study, there's been nothing but bad news, bad news, bad news. Wouldn't you say that it's time to get into a little bit of laughter and good news and joy? And that's exactly how chapter 21 begins because we finally come to the birth of Isaac, whose name means what? Who remembers? Laughter. His name means laughter. And he did indeed bring a good deal of joy into the life of his family, or at least to almost all the members of his family. There was one particular member of his family who was not quite so joyous about the birth of Isaac, and that, who do you think, was? Right, his half-brother Ishmael. Now, so this lesson... On the first, um, oops, I'm behind already. On the first ten verses, that's all we'll be able to cover. First ten verses of chapter 21, which I've entitled Isaac and Ishmael. We're going to look at three divisions for our outline. We'll look first of all at verses one to seven, birth delight. Then verses eight to ten, brotherly discord. And then in the third section, we won't actually be so much in verses, but we're going to talk about some amazing typology which we find presented for us in Isaac and a little bit also in Ishmael. So that third section I've entitled Bible Depths, and you'll see why when we get into that discussion. So we'll look at birth delight, brotherly discord, and third Bible depths. And you can see under the first part, birth delight, that we'll cover three subdivisions beginning with Isaac's birth. So Isaac's birth, look with me at verses 1 and 2 of Genesis chapter 21. The scripture says, And the Lord visited Sarah as he had said. And the Lord did unto Sarah as he had spoken. For Sarah conceived and bare Abraham a son in his old age at the set time of which God had spoken to him. For all of her married life, which would have been a very long time since at this point in the scripture, she's now 90 years old, Sarah had borne the burden of being barren. And that would be difficult enough in our own day for a woman who really desired to have children. But it was a real stigma of disgrace for her living in her particular time and culture. In fact, the first time that we were introduced to Sarah in the scripture, we were told that she was barren, that she had no child. That was back in Genesis 11, verse 30. And to make matters worse, she had married a man named Abram. Do you remember what Abram means in Hebrew? Exalted father. 
And you know that that must have brought a lot of laughter behind her back because uh, she had no children and Abraham was not at all a father, much less an exalted father. And it would have made matters probably even worse when God then changed Abram's name from Abram to Abraham, which means what? What you just said, father of many nations or father of multitudes. And the only son he had at that point in time was not even by way of Sarah, but was by way of her Egyptian handmaid, Hagar. But in Genesis 21, we finally see Sarah's burden of barrenness lifted. The great day at long last came when all her hopes and all her longings for many, many, many years were finally realized because she gave birth to a son. And he was a very special son, the son of promise from whom nations and even kings and even the king of kings himself would one day come. So what a glad day that must have been. Can't you imagine for her, 90 years old and finally getting a son. So we know it was truly a day of great rejoicing and laughter. I mean, this time genuine, believing, heartfelt, heartfelt laughter not only for Sarah, but also for Abraham. The birth of Isaac, however, involved a lot more than just joy and laughter for an old couple who finally was, were able to bear a son. For one thing, it emphasized the fact that God does indeed keep his promises. You notice three times in verses 1 and 2, three times we were told that God did exactly as he had spoken, as he had said. It says, And the Lord visited Sarah as he had said. And the Lord did unto Sarah as he had spoken. And then at the end of the verse 2, it says, At the set time of which God had spoken to him, to Abraham. So God does keep his word. Furthermore, God's promises are fulfilled in his time. Not our time, in his time. And we see this in verse 2 because it tells us that Isaac was born when? At the set time. You see, God works on his time schedule, not on our time schedule. He is not slack concerning his promises, as some count slackness. Abraham and Sarah had thought that God was slack about keeping his promise. So what did they try to do at one point? They tried to hurry him along by taking matters into their own hands. Do you ever do that? All the time, I'm guilty. They grew impatient, as we often do. And of course, you know how they had to live, and we're still living, with the consequences of their impatience. They had to learn that it's through faith and patience that we inherit the promises of God, as it says in Hebrews 6.12. Faith in God, in case you haven't realized this, faith in God is a spiritual journey in which God desires to build us up stronger and stronger and stronger. That's exactly what we see through the life of Abraham and also through the life of Sarah. Each little trial, well, he gave, he gave them promises, and then he would send a trial to test their faith in him and their patience. Sometimes they would pass those tests, sometimes they didn't, just like you and I. But he wants us to grow in our trust of his word and to wait on him. That's probably one of the most difficult things in the Christian life, is waiting on God. But doing so will produce blessings at the end. But guess what? Not only will it produce blessings at the end, it will produce blessings along the way. Because if we're waiting on God, and we should learn by looking at these examples given to us in the Scripture. You know, God's got our story on a page somewhere. We can't see maybe the, the next couple pages ahead. But don't you want them to have nice things about you, how you waited on him, waited on him, wait just like Abraham? Should have, not always did, but I um, forgot what I was saying. He want, uh, it will not only produce blessings at the end, but blessings along the way, because then we won't be anxious. We won't have all the worries and concerns that we normally do um, in life. Worry is one of the, the <laughs> plagues of, of life, I guess, just worrying about everything. 
And uh, 90% of what we worry about, or 90, maybe even higher than that, never even happens. But one of the best pieces of advice to keep our lives from encountering a lot of anxiety and worry and frustration and despair is simply just to submit to God's timetable. Just, you know, submit to his sovereignty, his sufficiency, his timetable, and then to adjust our walk with him to his cadence. You know, slow down to, to his walk and walk side by side with him. God is not only always on time, but he is always in time. And he acts at the right time, the best time, and at the promised time. So if we could only sink that in to our brains, it's not our time, it's his time. Well, in addition to bringing great joy and be, being further proof that God does keep his promises and also demonstrating that he keeps his promises on time, the birth of Isaac also demonstrated the power of God. <clears throat> so think of three Ps when it comes to learning what we, what we should about the birth of Isaac. God is a promise keeper. I have to start with a P, so I'll use that. He keeps his promises. He's a promise keeper. He's always punctual. And we think of his power. All those things were emphasized in the birth of Isaac. One of the primary reasons that God waited as long as he did before he allowed Sarah to give birth to Isaac was because he wanted both Abraham and Sarah and all the future readers of, of the scripture, like you and I, he wanted us all to realize that a, uh, Isaac's birth was miraculous. It took inter God's intervention. It was miraculous. Not only was it necessary for God to produce a miracle in Sarah's barren and postmenopausal body so that she could conceive, but guess what? It was also a miracle for Abraham to be able to bear a child. Three times, again we have the number three, three times in this first section of Genesis chapter 21, actually in verses 2 and 5 and 7, we see that emphasis is given to the age of Abraham, that he was an old man. How old was he? A hundred when Isaac was born. In fact, the Apostle Paul, in the fourth chapter of Romans, you don't have to turn there, but you might want to make a note of it, in, ch in chapter four of Romans, he not only spoke about the deadness of Sarah's womb, but he also spoke of the deadness of Abraham, his 100-year-old body. So both of them, you see, what God wanted to do here, he wanted to have both of them as good as dead as far as their reproductive capabilities are concerned so that everyone would know that Isaac's birth was a miracle of God and not simply a marvel of man. Remember what he said back in verse 14 of chapter 18? Remember, there is nothing too hard, nothing too wonderful for the Lord. It was not a problem for God who, remember, is the creator of all that exists. Everything in the universe. He's the creator of life. It's not a problem for him to turn back the biological clock if that's what he desires to do. Sarah was not only made young enough in her body to conceive, first of all, of course, her barrenness was removed, but then her body was rejuvenated so that she was able to conceive and think about this one, endure the hardship of labor at 90 years of age, a firstborn, you know, they're always the most difficult, uh, she was not only able to endure all of that, but she was also able to nurse her own child. And we'll see that in verse 7. And then, like Sarah, Abraham's body was also rejuvenated. He was revitalized. And, you know, I'm saying he was dead because we learn this in Romans chapter 4. His body was dead. He could not any longer conceive children. So his body was rejuvenated, so much so that after Sarah died... He was able to have six more children 
by way of his second wife, Keturah. And he lived another 75 years after Isaac was born. So you see, his body was also rejuvenated. But So we see all these wonderful things about God's power, God's promises, God's punctuality. But most of all, the birth of Isaac was very, very important for the redemptive plan of God himself. The birth of that tiny baby boy born long ago by two old parents and which produced such joy in their hearts that little boy was critical in God's purposes for the future salvation of the entire world Isaac you know according to the world might have looked very insignificant and small and weak and inconsequential but to God he was very significant because Isaac would become the father of Jacob. Jacob's name, and here's a picture of Jacob on his deathbed with his sons around him. Jacob's name would be turned to what? Israel. And from Israel, who is, was Isaac's grandson, from Israel would come the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 sons who became the 12 tribes of Israel. And they would give the world the written word of God and the living word of God because through one of those tribes the tribe of Judah would come the promised seed of the woman the Messiah the Lord Jesus Christ himself so was the birth of little Isaac important it was very very important well then in the next two vignettes we see the two responses of the two parents of newborn little Isaac. Abraham's response was one of action. That's typical of a man, isn't it? One of action. We'll see that in verses 3 and 5. And Sarah's response was one of emotion. And again, that's very typical. So let's look next at Abraham's obedience, and then we'll look at Sarah's joy. First of all, Abraham's obedience, verses 3 to 5. It says, And Abraham called the name of his son that was born unto him, whom Sarah bare to him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac, being eight days old, as God had commanded him. So what we see here stressed in these verses concerning Abraham and his response to the birth of his son is his obedience to God. First of all, he pr pronounced the name of his son. In obedience to the command that God had given Abraham back in Genesis 17 and verse 19 regarding the name Abraham called the little son Isaac, meaning laughter. The second thing we see that Abraham did in obedience to God's command is that he circumcised Isaac according to what God had instructed him to do back in Genesis 17 again, verses 10 to 14. And he circumcised him when he was how old? Eight days old. Now, Abraham's obedience might not seem like any big deal here, but it was to God. It demonstrated Abraham's trust and his uh, dependence on God. Obedience to God's word may not always be easy, but it is always, always the best thing to do might not be easy. And we say, well, that's what was so hard about what Abraham did. Well, if you think about it, it really probably wouldn't have been that easy of a thing to name a son, one that you've waited a hundred years to have, to name him a name which almost seemed comical. I mean, can you imagine waiting a hundred years to have a child and then naming him Laughter? It, it uh, Many people in Abraham's shoes, probably would have argued with God about the name or tried to reason with him about changing it to something a little more pious <laughs> or a little more biblical or a little more significant. Many would have probably given him a name which more impressed their neighbors or their friends or their fellow church members than the name which God had assigned, the name Laughter. Furthermore, it would have not been really that easy of a matter to circumcise a little eight-day-old baby. 
there would be, of course, the pain and the cries that would come from that infant, which would hurt Abraham more than the child. And there would be the concern, at least I would have concern, about a knife in the hands of a hundred-year-old man as he's attempting to cut on a tiny little infant. So Abraham's obedience here involved trust in God, and it was not without some difficulty. Yet the submissive heart, the heart which is truly submissive to God and trusting in God will do exactly what God uh, commands. Will do so without complaint, without argument, without attempting to alter or revise or reschedule whatever it is that God is saying. Because the submissive, obedient heart is going to understand and know that God knows best. His ways are way higher than our ways. And so therefore we just need to do what he says to do. All right, let's look at Sarah's joy, verses 6 to 7. It says, And Sarah said, God hath made me to laugh, so that all that hear will laugh with me. And she said, Who would have said unto Abraham that Sarah should have given children suck? For I have, been, for I have borne him a son in his old age. Sarah was absolutely radiant. I mean, she is bubbling over with joy and smiles and, and laughter. Her greatest desire had finally been fulfilled. At long last, she was a mother. She was able to hold her very own child in her arms and love him without any reserve whatsoever. It wasn't a son that she had to hand back to somebody else. He belonged to her. He would grow up and he would only call one woman in all the world mother, and it would be her. <clears throat> I only have one son and he just went off to the Navy. And I'm having a hard time with it. <clears throat> you know how it is when you're, some of you have been through the emptiness. I had gotten used to it because he's been gone in school for six years. And, uh, but this time when he left, it was like I knew he would never come back and really live with us again. It'll be different. And I'm having a hard time. <laughs> Every time I come across another pair of his dirty socks or something, I go through the whole thing all over again. <laughs> Oh, but he called last night to tell me he loved me. Anyway, her 90-year-old heart must have felt just like it would burst. I mean, joy unspeakable was spilling over from her head through her mouth as she actually, thank you, she actually brought, broke forth into song. You say, well, I don't see that. Where is Sarah singing? Well, she is singing, believe it or not. <laughs> Did you sing when you had your first child? <laughs> oh, I did. <laughs> the word for said in verse 6 in the Hebrew is not one of the common words for speaking. It's uh, Rather, it's the word millel, M-I-L-L-E-L. It sounds like the word hillel from where we get hallelujah. Uh, but it's a word which is a poetic word, and what it implies is that her worm, words, her worms, <laughs> her words formed a, a song, a song of joy and gladness. And you know, there were other women who would come along in time, and they would also uh, respond in joy over the births of their sons in a very similar manner to the manner in which we, we see Sarah responding. Does anybody know who those two mothers might have been? Uh, you got one of them right. Yeah, Mary. I'm not sh sure if Elizabeth broke into song. Hannah. Hannah the, Hannah, the mother of Samuel, broke into a song. And uh, you can read that in 1 Samuel 2, verses 1 to 10. And then Mary, after the birth of Christ, also broke, bro broke out into a song. In Luke chapter 1, verses 46 to 55. Now, Sarah's song of joy over the birth of Isaac was really a play on words here. 
Everyone would have just heard, because Abraham just made the announcement about Isaac's name, so everyone would have heard that the child was to be named Isaac, and they all knew that that meant laughter. So Sarah, with a play on words, speaks of laughter. Not only her own laughter, but she speaks about the laughter of all those who would hear about his miraculous birth. I mean, we laughed as we've been studying this, haven't we? You know, to think that a 90-year-old woman would give birth to a, a son, we laugh too. But notice it says they would laugh with her. We're not laughing at her, we're laughing with her because we understand her joy. Now her song speaks of God's power. She sang, she sang uh, God hath made me to laugh. It's God who gets the glory. Although a few years earlier she had laughed in disbelief, Remember that, when she was eavesdropping behind the tent? Uh, she had laughed in, in disbelief when she first heard that she would actually give birth to a son. Remember what the Lord did? He had rebuked her, and he had said, Is anything too hard for the Lord? But now, with her infant in her arms, she knew experientially the answer to that question. There is nothing that is too hard with the Lord. And so she laughed with joy. She had learned a very critical lesson about God's power. He is indeed able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we could ever ask or think. Now what do we learn then from Isaac's birth? Well, we learn how vitally important, as we already said, how vitally important it is for us to trust God's word and to do his will because the blessings will always, sooner or later, on God's time schedule, they will always uh, follow obedience. God does keep his promises. He is not slack to fulfill his promises. He's promised he will return one day. And men scoff and they laugh and they mock about that. But he will return. You can count on it. He will return. He's only slack, what it looks like to us, he's slack, because he's long-suffering to us, word, not willing that any should perish. He's, he's giving us time so that many more will come to him. But regardless of how long it may take or how long we may have to wait, we can always, always count on the Lord uh, accomplishing his purposes. He will fulfill every one of his predictions, and he will honor his word. His word does not, his word cannot, and his word will not ever return void. Got that? If there's one thing we ever learn in this Bible study, let's learn that, that we can trust this book, every single word of it. All right, let's look next at brotherly discord, verses 8 to 10. And the child grew and was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast the same day that Isaac was weaned. And Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, which she had borne unto Abraham, mocking. Wherefore she said unto Abraham, Cast out this bondwoman and her son, for the son of this bondwoman shall not be heir with my son, even with Isaac." You know, it was um, a custom back in Abraham's day for mothers to nurse their children for approximately somewhere between two and three years of age. And then a feast was enjoyed by the family and friends at the time the child was weaned off of his mother's milk. So they had, uh, we have birthday parties, they had weaning parties. <laughs> And we're told in verse 8 that Abraham threw a great feast for Isaac's weaning party. Can you imagine going to Hallmark and buying a happy weaning, happy weaning card? <laughs> Being, of course, a very wealthy man, the feast was great, you know, because uh, he was wealthy and so he could have a big feast. And it was probably attended by a great many people. He was still living in Gerar. Remember, Abimelech invited him to stay there. We find out in the next verses that we'll look at, Lord willing, next week, that he did stay there. He took up that invitation. So maybe even Abimelech and all of his wives attended this great weaning party feast. Um, so it was a wonderful day of celebration. 
for the 103-year-old man and his 93-year-old wife, who both must have been laughing with joy at the fantastic miracle God had performed in their lives. There was, however, one among them who was not quite so happy, and that was 17-year-old Ishmael. You might want to write in the margin that now Ishmael is 17 years old. For his 14 years prior to the birth of his little half-brother, Ishmael had been the center of his father's attention, right? 14 long years he had been the only son, but not so anymore, although we know, of course, that his father still loved him and loved him deeply. Now, we might look back at the end of chapter 16, if you want to do that, and notice that there was no great feast mentioned with regard to the birth or to the weaning of Ishmael. No great feast, no birth party, and no weaning party is mentioned. Furthermore, Ishmael's inheritance rights were not in question at all when he was the only son of Abraham. But with the birth of Isaac, things changed. Isaac was the son of Abraham's wife. So uh, Ishmael, at 17 years of age, was old enough to understand, to realize that this change affected him greatly with regard to being his father's heir. So Ishmael was not at all happy about the presence of his little two- or three-year-old brother. Perhaps, with all the crowds around at this great feast, Ishmael didn't think that anyone would notice his mockery of Isaac. But who was watching? Who's always watching? A little toddler. <laughs> Mama was watching, and she was not at all pleased. So at her first opportunity, she went to Abraham, and she insisted. Notice she doesn't call... Hagar by her name, or Ishmael by name. She says, she insists that the bondwoman and her son be what? Cast out. Now, many people have criticized Sarah. They, they criticize her for, you know, just reacting so harshly and so mean here toward Ishmael and toward Hagar. After all, who was the one who was responsible for initiating this whole mess to begin with? Right. It was her fault to begin with. She's the one who gave Hagar to Abraham, and that's why Ishmael was on the scene. But it's interesting, for all the criticism that people have given to her for this reaction, it's interesting to look down a few verses, look at verse 12, and find that God actually took Sarah's position in this matter. Because it's God who told Abraham to listen to his, his wife. Listen to the voice of your wife and do as she has told you to do. Now, we might be able to understand why Sarah would want to get rid of Ishmael and Hagar. But why would God agree with her? That seems really harsh, doesn't it? Well, to answer that question, first of all, we need to understand a little more about the meaning of the word mocking that's used in verse 9. It was not simply a joking, playful kind of mockery which Ishmael was lightheartedly enjoying with his little two- or three-year-old brother. In other words, it was not a kind of gentle big brother teasing. To better understand what was involved in this mockery, what we really need to do is turn over to Galatians in the New Testament, Galatians 4, verse 29, where the Apostle Paul tells us, look at that, Galatians 4, 29, the Apostle Paul actually tells us that what Ishmael was really doing was persecuting Isaac. This means that it was severe mockery with a deep-seated heart attitude to cause suffering. It was a hostile belittling coming from a 17-year-old young man 
toward an innocent little toddler. Furthermore, the word mocking in Genesis 21.9 and also Paul's word persecuted, persecuted in Galatians 4.29, both of those words are given in the imperfect tense, which means that it was a continuous mocking. It was a continuous persecution. It was something which had been going on for a long time. It didn't just happen at this weaning party. It was not merely a harmless bit of ridicule at a family celebration. Ishmael had been mean-spirited toward the child probably from the time of his birth. And Sarah very likely had noticed this going on for quite some time. She very wisely saw the danger in this for her son, who was the rightful heir of Abraham. And more importantly, he is the son to carry on the messianic line. He is the son of the covenant promises. It's through him that the Savior would come, the one promised back in Genesis 3.15, who would crush the head of the serpent. God, remember God had predicted that Ishmael, even before he was born, God had predicted that he would become a wild man and that his hand would be against every man and every man's hand would be against him. We saw that in Genesis 16, verse 12. And now at 17 years of age, we find this prediction is already beginning to come true. It's coming true against his very own little half-baby brother, stepbrother. In fact, in fulfillment of God's prophecy, we see Ishmael's descendants yet today mocking and persecuting the descendants of Isaac. Do we not? We do. But Ishmael's uh, attitude and his behavior went even deeper than just jealousy over his um, the affection that his little brother was receiving from his father, Abraham. And it went deeper than the inheritance that he had lost because of Isaac's birth. Ishmael surely knew from his own father, Abraham, about the covenant promises which God had given to his father. And at 17, he surely knew that God had promised his father a son through his wife, Sarah. And at 17, he would know that it was indeed a miracle for his father and for barren old Sarah to conceive and have this child. He would have to know that this had been a miracle and this had been the fulfillment of God's promises to his father. So Ishmael's mockery, his persecution of Isaac demonstrates his disrespect and his heart attitude toward God's promises and toward God's power. In mocking Isaac, he was really mocking the works and the words of God himself. And worst of all was that his persecution and his attack against Isaac represented a, a rejection of the coming Savior because it was through Isaac that the promised seed of the woman would come, was destined to come. So there's a whole lot more involved and just a little teasing going on at a party. Okay, now we get, not, in, not so much, we're not looking at verses any longer, but uh, we will be looking at some scriptures. We're going to get into a look at some of the Bible depths that we find, first of all, in um, the fact that Isaac is a picture in type, a prophetic picture they call this uh, typology, a study of foreshadow, foreshadowments, and adumbrations is another word for it. He's a picture of Christ. And we'll see this as we go on through Isaac's life more and more and more and more. He becomes a picture and picture and a picture of Christ himself. So we're going to look at a little bit of that just from his birth. And then secondly, we're going to look at Isaac, who is also a picture in type of the new birth, the second birth, what we call being saved or born again. Let's first of all look at Isaac as a type of Christ. There is more to his birth than we've discussed, and we've discussed quite a few things. 
But there was more to his birth than the critical truth that he was the promised son who would carry on the chosen line of the Savior of the world. As I said, he is a picture of the coming birth of the Savior himself. By way of Isaac's miraculous conception in which God quickened, you know, brought to life a barren and a dead womb, God was graciously preparing Israel and even the whole world for another miraculous birth. You see, through the birth of Isaac, God was facilitating our faith in the virgin birth of the God-man. Dr. Boyce, in his commentary, writes these interesting comments about the miraculous nature of the two births of Isaac and of Jesus Christ. He says, quote, The birth of Jesus, like the birth of Isaac, required a miracle. To be sure, the miracle in Jesus' birth was greater. It required conception without benefit of any human father. While in Isaac's case, the miracle was only that of restoring reproductive power to an elderly couple. But this is what we should expect if the earlier birth, birth of Isaac, is a foreshadowing of the later. A lesser miracle followed by a greater miracle. So, in one way he's a type of Christ is by the fact that he was miraculously conceived. His birth was also a foreshadowing of Christ's birth in that it occurred when? At God's set time. Remember that back in verse 2? Nothing was left to mere chance. God's plan was not dependent upon man. I mean, if it had been, Abraham would have destroyed everything regarding Isaac when he had gone down to Gerar and had lied about his relationship with Sarah and had lost her to Abimelech. That would have spoiled everything right there if God's plan was dependent on man. <clears throat> but God's plan is not dependent on man. God still saw to it. He had to intervene. He still saw to it that Isaac's birth was uh, at the set time. It occurred at the set time which he had determined. God's plans are all, they've all been firmly fixed in eternity past. I guess I have to go on this side, don't I, for you? Eternity past. And they will be carried out uh, at his appointed time. And this was absolutely also true in connection with the incarnation and birth of our Savior. It says in Galatians 4.4, But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his Son. Right on schedule, as God had planned in eternity past. Well, also Isaac pictured the Lord's birth in that there was a lengthy interval of time between God's first promise to Abraham regarding the fact that he would have a son and the fulfillment of it. There were actually 25 years between the time when Abraham first heard that he would have, uh, you know, be given seed and that through that seed all the families or all the nations of the earth would be blessed. That was back in uh, Genesis chapter 12. That was 25 years before, because Abraham was 75 at that time, and now he's 100 when Isaac is born. So there are 25 years of interval between the promise and the fulfillment of the promise. Well, there was also, of course, a lengthy period of time between God's promise to send the Christ and the fulfillment of that promise. Yet, again, we see that God was totally punctual according to his own time schedule. So if we are anxious about anything concerning any of God's promises, guess what? We're looking at the wrong clock. We're looking at our clocks. Of course, my clock is even wrong. <laughs> but we're looking at the wrong clocks. We need to be looking at his clock, not our clock. And, of course, he's outside of time. So one day to him is as a thousand years. All right, now it's also interesting to see that the, the uh, mothers of both Isaac and and Christ verbalized the impossibility, humanly speaking, 
of having their sons as God had promised. When Sarah first learned that she was going to have a son, you know, it was when she was behind the tent eavesdropping, what did she do? You all know. She laughed because she knew that not only was she barren, but that she was beyond the time, even if she wasn't barren, she was then beyond the time when she could conceive. So in her response to her own inner question, God knew what she was asking in her mind. She had said, shall I of a surety bear a child which am old? What did the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus say to her? He said, we all know because we've already said this before, is anything too hard for the Lord? Well, you know, some 2,000 years later, we find the striking analogy when Mary was told by the angel Gabriel that she was to bring forth a son who would be the savior of the world. Now, knowing the human impossibility of this, what did she ask Gabriel? She said, how shall this be? Um, <clears throat> how shall this be? Now, she wasn't asking in the doubt that Sarah was when Sarah laughed. Sarah laughed in disbelief. Mary did not have disbelief. She just wanted to know how this will be, seeing I know not a man. That's in Luke one thirty-four. I mean, she was a virgin. So she said, well, how will this be? And again, as in the case with Sarah, the answer was a testimony to the absolute power of God because you know what Gabriel said to her after he told her how the Holy Ghost would come upon her and that she would conceive the Son of God. He said to her, with God, nothing shall be impossible. Does that sound similar to Sarah's answer? Is anything too hard for the Lord? And now Mary hears with God, nothing shall be impossible. So not only were there humanly impossible difficulties for both Sarah and for Mary to conceive the promised sons, but also each of them was given a divine message emphasizing the absolute power of God, which is able to accomplish anything, anything and everything. Sarah might have been barren. You think that's a problem for God? piece of cake. No problem. She and, and Abraham might have both been dead, reproductively speaking. Uh, again, no problem for God. If you're God, you can do anything. Mary might have been a virgin, but again, such trifles are no problem whatsoever to the one who created everything that exists. As Jeremiah put it, this is in Jeremiah 32, 17. Jeremiah said, Ah, Lord God, behold, thou hast made the heaven and earth by thy great power and stretched out arm, and there is nothing too hard for thee. Nothing. Now, another way in which Isaac foreshadowed Christ was by the fact that his name just like the Lord's name, was specified prior to his birth. Prior to his birth. In Genesis 17, 19, Abraham was told by God, and thou shalt call his name Isaac. God likewise had chosen the name for his son before his birth, and he told Joseph in a dream, you know, Joseph, the earthly stepfather of our Lord. What did he tell him in a dream? He said, and she, speaking of Mary, shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name, same words, and thou shalt call his name, but here's a different name, a name that is above every name. Thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Matthew one twenty one. So you see all the similarities here? Quite a few. In addition, the name of Isaac means, everybody say it, <laughs> it means laughter. Laughter speaks of joy and delight. He was indeed his father's delight. He was also his mother's delight. And so too was the one born in Bethlehem. He was the beloved son in whom his father was well pleased. Isaac's name 
means rejoicing. I mean, it, uh, it promised the rejoicing which would come to the world one day through his seed, through Jesus, who brought the greatest source of joy that anyone can ever have or will ever have. At Isaac's birth, there was laughter and joy, as we saw expressed by Sarah. And so, too, was joy expressed at the time of Christ's birth. Remember the angel speaking to those shepherds out in uh, the fields of Bethlehem? They said, the angel said, Behold, I bring you good tidings of what? Great joy, which shall be to all people. You know, if there was ever anything to be joyful about is the birth of Christ, the God-man. Do you ever wonder why there's so much joy at Christmas time, even in the secular world? Why is that? I mean, they don't even know the joy, but they're, that's a hap- the happiest time of the year. It's also sometimes sad. If you're alone, it's a sad time. But why is there so much joy at Christmas? It's because the angels said that God was bringing the whole world good news, the good tidings of great joy. Well, furthermore, just as Isaac was mocked and actually persecuted, so too was the Lord Jesus mocked and persecuted throughout his entire earthly life and particularly at the time of his arrest and his trials and his crucifixion. And he is still mocked today. And his people, both the Jews and Christians, are persecuted, particularly by the descendants of Ishmael. Well, not only did Isaac's birth foreshadow the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ, but it was also a beautiful picture in type of the new birth. The new birth, or salvation as we call it, occurs, of course, I hope you know, when a person puts his or her faith in Christ's death and his burial and his resurrection on their behalf, knowing and understanding that all Christ did was for him. You know, to pay in full the payment of sin in our place. The wages of sin is death. He took our death on himself so that we could have eternal life with him if we believe in that death, put our trust in it. So we're going to consider um, Isaac as a picture in type of the new birth, the second birth. And in doing that, we will see that Ishmael represents the first birth the physical birth, the flesh birth. We're all born, well, we're all born once. We're all born naturally, physically, from our mother's womb. But if you have been born from above because you have accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior, then you're born a second time, right? The second birth. In Galatians, and you want to go back to Galatians chapter 4, verses 28 and 29. I want you to see this so you don't think I'm just making this up. Isaac is indeed a type, a picture of the new birth. It's actually, we're actually told that in the scripture. It says in Galatians 4, verse 28 and 29, Paul writes, Now we brethren, so who's he writing to? Christians. He's writing to believers. Now we brethren, as Isaac was are the children of promise. See, if you're a believer, you too are a child of promise. But as then he that was born after the flesh. Now, who is that speaking of? Ishmael. But as then he, Ishmael, that was born after the flesh, persecuted him, persecuted Isaac, that was born after the spirit. Notice the next words. Even so it is now. You see, that means even so it is to this day with you and I. Paul was making it very clear that Ishmael, who was born after the flesh, represents the first birth of man, the physical birth, while Isaac represents the second birth, the new birth of the believer, which is accomplished not by the flesh, but by the spirit. You see, Ishmael had been born to Abraham before his body was dead, in, you know, reproductively. In his flesh, 
At the time Ishmael was born, Abraham was still able to conceive. He had not yet, quote-unquote, died. On the other hand, Isaac was truly a miracle birth. He was born of the Spirit because by the time of his birth, both of his parents were dead, spiritually, or physically speaking, and spiritually speaking. Well, no, not spiritually speaking, just reproductively speaking. All right. For Isaac to be born, in other words, that which was dead had to be quickened to life. And who had to do that? God himself, God the Holy Spirit. As with Isaac's miraculous birth, so it is with every Christian. Before we can be saved, before we can be born again, God has to work a miracle. I mean, salvation is totally a miracle. When we, by grace, through faith, trust Christ to save us, we experience a miracle birth from God the Holy Spirit. Now, Abraham was the father of all them that believe. He's the father of faith. Remember, we've seen that in the scripture. He is the father of faith. He represents faith. Sarah, according to Galatians 4, where you are right now, verses 24 to 26, we'll discuss this more next week, Sarah symbolizes grace. For by grace are you saved through faith. The two of them produced Isaac, who represents the believer's second birth. You see why I call this Bible depths? We're getting into some real meat here. This is the meat of the word. The human impossibility of Abraham and Sarah to produce a child shows us the complete inability of man to ever bring about his own salvation, his own new birth. You, there's nothing you can do to get yourself saved. I mean, all other re- religions besides Christianity, it's a works system. There's something you have to do to get saved. But it's impossible. Just like it was impossible for Abraham and Sarah to conceive Isaac. Humanly speaking, it was impossible. It took a miracle. It takes a miracle for us to be born again as well. You know, the scripture, we've seen this already, the scripture often presents us with a picture of the importance of the second birth through God's rejection of firstborn sons and his acceptance of second-born sons. We saw this already in the case with Cain and Abel back in Genesis chapter 4. Cain, the firstborn son, was rejected. I mean, it was his own fault, but he was rejected by God, whereas Abel, the second-born son, was the one who was accepted. Uh, And we see this now with Ishmael, who was really the firstborn son, and Isaac, the second-born son. And we're going to see it again with Isaac's uh, two sons, Esau and Jacob. And also, it was pictured, this truth of the importance of the second birth was pictured for us on the night of the Passover in Egypt because all the firstborns were condemned to die by the angel of death. When the angel of death would pass through through the city, um, all the firstborns would die unless, what? Unless the door was covered with the blood of an innocent lamb that had been sacrificed. The door of their home, just like the door of our heart, needs to be covered by the blood of an innocent lamb, the lamb of God, his perfect sinless sacrifice. If that home was protected by the blood of the lamb, then the angel of death would pass over. That's where the name Passover came from. Would pass over that house, and that firstborn son or daughter was looked upon as a secondborn. You see? The picture, the beautiful picture that we have of the new birth, the importance of it. You will, you will suffer the second death unless you have been born twice. 
unless you have been born again. Well, like the birth of Isaac, also the new birth was, is a source of joy. It's a source of laughter. You know, in Luke chapter 15, there are three parables which the Lord Jesus gave which stress the joy which results when a lost sinner repents and experiences the new birth. Those three parables were the parable of the lost sheep. You know, there were 99, fine, but one went out and got lost. The joy when that one sheep was brought back. There was the parable of the lost coin. And then there was the parable of the prodigal son. All of those parables were stressing the joy of the new birth. Now, remember I mentioned that we didn't read of any joy that was connected with the birth of Ishmael, did we? There wasn't any joy. It was just, it brought a lot of trouble. Both before and after Ishmael's birth, he was a source of trouble. You see, that which is born of the flesh, oops, I don't have to, that which is born of the flesh, speaking of the old nature, the old man, cannot produce the fruit of the Spirit. Can't produce love, joy, peace, patience, etc., regardless of how much it might try. So there's no joy connected with Ishmael's birth. In Genesis 21.8, we read that Isaac then grew and he was weaned. When we are first saved, we are called spiritual babes. We are babes in Christ. It's not the end when we are first saved. It's merely the beginning of our growth with the Lord. And as newborn babes, we are to desire what? The sincere milk of the word, as it says in 1 Peter 2.2. I always remember that verse because of 2.2. I always put that with a baby. 1 Peter (laughs) 2.2. We are to desire the sincere milk of the word that we might grow spiritually. Pretty soon, however, as we grow, and and this is our milk right here that we're to drink, the milk of the word, pretty soon we're to be weaned from the milk, just as Isaac was weaned from Sarah. And what do you feed a child once he's weaned off of his mother's milk? You start feeding him solid food. We are to put away childish things, and we're to um, start to feast on the meat of God's word. This is what Paul, the Apostle Paul, was admonishing the Corinthians about. They had been babes drinking milk far too long. You know what our churches are full, full of? Babies. I mean, some of them have been babies for 30, 40, 50 years, and they're still like this man here. They're still drinking milk they haven't gotten gotten into even the depths that we've looked at this morning this is the meat of god's word and so paul told them he said for everyone that uses milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness for he is a babe but strong meat belongeth to them that are full age in other words you know you to be mature. You're to grow in the word. Even those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Do you know why there's so many Christians out there who are being tossed about by every wind of doctrine? It's because they're not grounded in the meat of God's word. They're still spiritual babies. And you know exactly what I'm talking about because Our churches are full of them. Well, once Isaac was weaned from his mother's milk, then we learned of what? What came next? His persecution. And this, too, is very typical of the Christian experience. The believer who is into the meat of God's word will generally be the one who begins to really walk his talk. And he will begin to flesh out his faith by living a godly lifestyle. He will begin to share his testimony with others. He will begin to uh, give out the gospel message. And consequently, what will happen? He will be mocked and he will be persecuted. It says, Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall, not might, shall suffer persecution. If you're not being mocked 
And if you're not being persecuted to some degree, it's because you are not living godly in Christ Jesus. Because it says, all who will live godly shall be. If you're out there giving your testimony and sharing the gospel, you know you're going to suffer some persecution and some mockery. Furthermore, the believer, symbolized by Isaac, will also soon find himself persecuted by the flesh. Remember, the flesh is symbolized by Ishmael. The flesh is opposed to the spirit. Did you ever notice that with yourself? (laughs) The spirit might be willing, but the flesh is incredibly weak. The old nature is at odds with the new nature. You notice we had not heard about Ishmael doing anything bad until Isaac appeared on the scene. And then the true character of Ishmael was manifested to us. And this is exactly how it is with believers. When we are born again and we receive our new nature by the Spirit of God, then our old nature, our old man, our carnal man, our flesh, whatever you want to call it, comes out in all of its true colors, doesn't it? Not until the new nature is received does the believer discover just how bad the character of his old nature is. The spirit and the flesh are then in discord. They're in conflict for the rest of the believer's life. Now, of course, we have the Holy Spirit, so we're able to to battle that that conflict between our flesh and our spirit. And we're able, if we yield to the spirit, we are able to have victory over the flesh. Well, another way, and I'll conclude with this, another way in which Isaac typifies the new birth is by his inheritance. When we are born of the spirit in the new birth, we become immensely wealthy, spiritually speaking. Isaac, right, was the heir to all of his father's wealth. And Abraham was a very, very, very wealthy man. As Christians, we are heirs to even a wealthier father, are we not? I mean, our father owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He owns it all. When we are saved, we become heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, as it says in Romans eight seventeen. So there's another thing in common. And then also we, um, we found that Isaac was born free. In other words, he was born of a free woman, Sarah, whereas Ishmael was the son of a bond woman. In Galatians, Paul told us, So then, brethren, this is in verse 29 of Galatians 4, So then, brethren, we are not children of the bond woman, but of the free And he tells us in chapter 5, verse 1, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Once you've been set free by the truth, if you shall know the truth, the truth shall set you free, right? Once you've been set free, he was telling them, don't go back under the the bondage of the law, which is what the Judaizers were trying to get the Christians to do at that time. Don't be yoked again with all kinds of legalism and try to go back under some some kind of a works system and think that now you have to work your way to heaven, that you have to help Christ out in what he did. That's what he's saying there. So do you see some of the depths of the riches of, of... The glory of this book, it's just, it's wonderful. There's no end to what we can learn from God's Word. And I hope you got a glimpse of that this morning. Well, in our next lesson, we're going to be uh, looking at the casting out of Hagar and her son Ishmael. At all costs, God had to protect his covenant promise concerning Isaac. So we'll look at that, Lord willing, next week.